one of those layman pascals, and this is the Integral Stage Meta Podcast, interviewing podcasters, YouTubers, and other folks who feel compelled to offer higher-level integrative and depth-oriented content through online media. Who are these people? Why do they do this? What are they collectively pointing at, and how can we help to amplify, clarify, and interconnect them? That's the project, and helping me figure it out today is some guy that my Google calendar insists on identifying as Miles Aikido, even though I've been assured he can Kessel as well as any other Kessler. Hi, Miles. <laughs> and then nice, to, nice to be with you, and I uh, appreciate the, the, the question and inquiry that you're, you're posing here. Terrific. Well, why don't you get us started by uh, briefly telling people where they could access your online content? Oh, well, I have a I have a, uh, a school here. I'm actually in my in my dojo in uh, I, I'm American, but I live in Tel Aviv, Israel, for about a dozen years now. And I have a, I have an Aikido school here. It's called the Integral Dojo, and I also have an online blog and a training, like a virtual training uh, uh, business, also called the Integral Dojo. And the you can find me at theintegraldojo.com. Yeah, so. You know, and I, I have a you know Facebook presence, and and basically through the through it's it's mainly through the blog that I kind of advocate for, you know, the integral perspective in Aikido. I'm an Aikido teacher and meditation. I teach a vipassana meditation. That's a big claim. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do my best. <laughs> um, what got you started focusing on you know using the internet as a transmission medium? Like, do you remember oh, the time where you thought, oh, I'm going to start blogging or I'm going to start no. putting some content on? Yeah, you know, it's really cool, Lemmy, because we've never met and I've, I've seen a little bit of what you're doing. Cause that, so a lot of this is going to be just kind of getting to know you as well. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm, uh, well, however long it's been since 76. <laughs> From 40 63. something. I'm in that. <laughs> All right. I just turned 57 and, and I did deep training in, in Japan. I, was, I lived there for eight years. And I spent another eight years kind of wandering and spending a lot of time in Burma and in Nepal meditating. And I kind of came out of all of that and in a way landed here in Israel. I mean, I was teaching Aikido around teaching here. And instead of going back to the States, I just kind of decided to kind of settle here. And that's when I actually started, I, I think I had 2000, maybe I had an email address, but it took, you know, I was way behind the curve because I'm, I'm, I'm just at the end of a boom of the boomers. So, um, uh, like the, the, the internet and the tech side was, I was kind of coming, I wasn't born with it. it. Took me a lot of time to get up to speed, you know, several years. But um, the interesting thing about it is that living here in Israel, um, in a way teaching, if I teach just straight Aikido, like traditional Aikido, it's a Japanese martial art, or if I teach straight Vipassana, traditional Vipassana, there's a there's people that are interested in it here kind of you know blue for sure because i actually came out of very blue blue traditions in asia um also there's a um israel's center of gravity is kind of orange and there's a little bit of emerging uh, uh green there's a few integralists around here but not a lot and um uh, most of the most of this the spirituality in israel is either blue like really traditional jewish wisdom or green kind of new way and um and neither one of those really did it for me so i would teach in my way and and also try to bring in the integral view and like many 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 integralists um you know when you really start to bring it into the world when you get past that stage of just being you know intellectual about it um you find that it's kind of lonely out there or lonely here so um 
it was very clear that that my tribe was was I, I could reach them online. And that's really where I started to kind of do this and get more and more uh, connected with the people that I wanted to teach. I mean, there's 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 the people that I'm actually interested in hanging out with, like you and and other interlists. But the people I want to teach are kind of green emerging, you know, turquoise. And um, and and there is some here in Israel, but but that's not really. I just find that it's mostly in the states, and Northern Europe, and that's that just became very clear that okay, online. I actually made the move to teaching online about. And it's, 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 it was, I, I don't regret doing it. It's, it's actually, it's actually wonderful. We're getting a little bit of lag on your video sometimes. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a problem or not. I'm happy to go forward. Oh my gosh. Hang on a second. Okay. I'm on the wrong network here. I don't know how that happened. That's very weird. It should, it should be, uh, it, I've got two routers, so it, should, it actually should be good now. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, the people you most want to contact are going to be distributed all over, especially if you're dealing with leading edge phenomenon of some kind. But I like the age thing is interesting, too. Like anybody younger than me doesn't remember the Internet coming online. Right. So there's, there's this real division of people who remember when it started and people who have always been immersed in it. I find that yeah. fascinating. It is fascinating. And there's a, you know, I, I, I in a way, I'm a little bit envious but also not envious of the of the younger generations because they're just born into it and it's just like you know they're so fluent at it but you know most of my work here in israel has been has been two to one like from teaching from second tier whatever claim that might be to first tier and at the beginning really having kind of a mission to to evolve the culture i remember when i first decided to live in israel because Israel was pretty crazy you know, these days it's fairly stable, but, um, you know, with the conflict between the Palestinians and Israelis, and there's a lot of traditionalism here in Israel, traditional Jewish, not to mention in Palestine. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, and orange, and there's, like I said, there's some emerging green. But I saw, I saw, okay, all the problems are really these kind of culture wars. And the solution is really just evolving. You know, let's evolve up the spiral. And, you know, we'll have more greater concern, greater compassion, and, and that's the solution. So it's very naive to think that, you know, okay, so I'll just do what I'm doing. And I actually had a, I had a nonprofit organization where I was teaching Aikido in the West Bank to Palestinians and, and um, a very heavy uh, second tier to, to, to first tier and um, to the point of getting burned out and realizing, well, you know, let's, look, I just want to hang out with the people that, that I share the perspective with. And then I made a shift after several years, really just kind of, you know, re kind of connecting more with, with integralists. But now I realize I'm kind of shifted back. And, and I, I, I really feel maybe from a more mature place that the real work is actually, is still second tier to first tier to really help, um, uh, what do you say, evolve the context, but not by pulling them up, but basically meeting them where they're at. And it just develops all these amazing, you know, as a teacher, you develop all these kind of intuitive skills on how to meet people where they're at but hopefully not leave them where they're at, you know, and that's, that's just, I, you know, I'm so grateful for, you know, for the integral view in a way. Yeah. That's a beautiful pattern that moving back and forth between, you know, uh, trying to consolidate and move forward with your own understanding and leading edge and be with the people who can help you with that. And you get so much energy and excitement from that. But at the same time, everything it's about in a way is about all the other kinds of perspectives that's where the on-the-ground information comes from. And I think a lot of times, in my experience, is helping people where they're at is a matter of you being 
you know, as, as far along as you can go and then just showing up and meeting them. Yeah, right. Yeah, and the showing up is the important part because unless you show up, I mean, I grew up pretty uh, postmodern. I didn't have very, I didn't have any, any religious uh, culture, education, none of that. So I kind of grew up with this kind of postmodern. And then I only realized years later when I went, I, I lived in Japan for eight years in a traditional Aikido dojo. And then I spent a lot of time in Buddhist monasteries in Burma, which is even more traditional, more, you know, more conservative blue. And I just realized later, you know, after kind of coming into contact with Ken's work, that um, yeah, I was just filling in a, a gap in my own development. And that allows me to actually show up with anybody who's in a, in a traditional context and, and they don't feel alien to me. And, I, and I, you know, hopefully I can show up in a way that doesn't feel alien to them. So there's this immediate relation, relationality that, that, um, that sets the context. And or orange, because that was a big, you know it is, when you, go, when you, when you follow spiritual path, there's, there's kind of a, a, a anti-materialism for a while and you, you really, so that was a big part of my learning to, you know, to kind of re-own orange and re-own, especially orange business. And uh, what do you say, clean up my relationship with, with money, basically. And um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just becoming a more fuller human being. You're probably in an interesting position to have some insights on the relationship between uh, single paths and mixed paths, you know, between, say, Aikido and mixed martial arts or between any spiritual tradition and a kind of syncretic hybrid approach. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, that's great. Um, because, my, because I followed like hardcore paths um, exclusively for years, but I don't teach hardcore paths. <laughs> so, you know, I, to, for, to, for me to get where I'm at now required me to be, go back and to be traditional and, you know, commit to a teacher and really, you know, do it the old, really old school way. And, um, and, but I don't, but I did, I'll tell you what, what's interesting, why it was possible because I did it in, in their context. You know, I allowed myself to, to go and fit into their box. Um, it's not like I bring a box here to the West and I, I ask everybody to fit into that. Um, so what's, what's good is, you know, when you follow one of these kind of, like you say, singular paths, it's very narrow. There's, there's not much integration happening there, really. But it goes deep. Because it's narrow, it goes very deep. And, and you know, like, if, for example, in, in meditation, also with Aikido, uh, it can take you to the source. And the reason I say meditation, because it's a 2,500-year-old tradition that's un, with an unbroken lineage that's doing that. Aikido is much newer. And, you know, since the founder, who was an awakened uh, being, um, uh, there's, he didn't really, he left a lot of successors, but not like him. So, but, but the art still will lead you to the, to the, uh, the core principles, which are universal. Um, so I appreciate the fact that I followed this, this really strict tradition because it took me deep and it took me far and it took me to, to whatever the source is. Um, but now when I teach, uh, no, I, then when I came back to, to the West, I was, I was out of the, I was living in Asia for about 16 years. And when I moved back to the West, the, um, the, uh, the integration path was, was hard. It took me several years. It's still taking me years. You know, lots of therapy, lots of, lots of coaching, lots of everything. Just to, Whereas I look at somebody who's meditating, like some of my students in my courses, they've been with me three, five years, um, they go much slower, but it's much more integrated. And after four or five years, I, now I can actually have this integral conversation with them. So it's, you know, it's a slow kind of gradual process, but I still encourage them, you know, whenever they can, whenever their life condition allows them to go 
you know, to, to, to take some time off and go do a retreat or do a retreat with me or, or whatever it is. So it's a funny thing, Layman. And um, I think for our modern context, you know, I, I get this question a lot from my students. I, I do believe that you should stay in one place, like drill, drill a well in one place long enough to reach the source. Because then when you reach the source, you, you can really, you, you taste anything else that has the source, you're just there. Whereas if, you, if, you, if you're a little bit more promiscuous with, with, promiscuous with your spirituality, um, it may not reach the source as fast. Long term, it might be. But what's good about that is that you create an integration. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've done some shamanic work, but um, like with, with medicine. But I remember because when I was young, I did, I did some drugs and stuff. You know, I had my, my years and then I had completely nothing for 20, 25 years. And on my hardcore meditation years, I was always thinking about, okay, maybe I'll try the medicine. It sounds like a really authentic path. But I told myself, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I kind of, you know, complete my training in, in, in Vipassana. And, and then I went and did it. And, um, and I realized that it's, it's such an authentic path. You know, it's so, it's, it's, it's completely different. Like completely different universes, states are states, yeah. But the teaching and the, you know, the guidance and the, you know, the, the intelligence that, that, that emerges from that practice, um, I, it's so, it's so, you can't deny it. You can't deny the power of it. So that integration, I, now I'm, I'm in a way, I'm enjoying the fruit of integration. But it was a long time waiting for that. And in terms of, like you said, MMA, I, I, I've done a few other martial arts, but I've really never explored the integration in, in that sense, you know, uh, in, like other fighting styles in a way. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because there's, it's almost like there's two different forms of integration. And one is just you're working on all your parts. Mm -hmm. The other one is an integration of depth practices. And in order to do that, you have to at least have drilled down far enough to know what the depth of a practice is so that you could recognize it in other contexts and try to integrate those together. Yeah. And then you can have the conversation and, you, and then you add the integral lens. Yeah. You can really have the conversation with, with anybody else because it's um, because in a way you're speaking, maybe not in, in the, in the, in the sense of uh, content, you're not speaking the same language, but in context, it's completely there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an amazing thing. I, I deeply appreciate it actually. There's a, that content context difference is really interesting to me. You know, it's almost like that's what second tier vision logic brings is you recognize these sort of insight structures that are independent of the terminology. So you start talking to somebody and they're speaking about a completely different genre of experience. I used to have this, my older brother does computer science and I would be coming at it from a meditation background and he would mm -hmm. say something about a problem he's having with code and how he understands that. And I'm like, I've seen that exact shape. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me, what kind of meditation do you do? Um, quite a lot of different kinds. I used to teach it, and I ended up becoming very abstract about it. I ended up just trying to say, like, what do all of them have in common? What are the basic right. subtypes? And right. I ended up focusing a lot more on kind of counseling people, like trying to figure out which person needs what kind of meditation at what moment. Totally, um, totally. At the today, like my general practice, uh, I would do some kind of concentration work, often with a mantra to help it out in the mornings to get mental yeah. clarity and stability. And then in mm -hmm. the afternoons, I'll do some version of an insight practice. But usually, I'm improvising and tinkering with it every so often. But that, I think that's also part of the second tier is that there's an intuitive, you know, there, there is an intuitive thread that that the practice un, is unfolding. Whether we're aligned with that unfolding or not is, is a whole other story. But at a certain point, we actually start to, 
you know, how we pay our, how we pay attention or how we are choiceless in our paying of attention is completely dependent on that intuitive thread. And often that intuitive thread is counterintuitive. You know, it's like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to pay attention to that because, you know, it's demanding in a way it's arising because of the, what do you say? The, the, the state that we've created, it's arising out of need to process or to, to purify. But sometimes that's not so pleasant. So the, the, the encounter in, or the intuitive thing is to turn away from that. But then at a certain point in our practice, we realize counterintuitively, well, actually, no, that's the, that's the unfolding path. Yeah, that's very well put. I think there's a, you know, there's a set of proto skills that you need in order to follow an intuitive path. You need to understand when turning away or turning toward is the problem or the solution, right? You need to be open, but at the same time, you need to be disciplined. Right? If you're going right. to follow a very organic path or just recognize that in some sense we're all following an organic path, you still can't slip into what you call promiscuity, right? which is you can't just jump on any exciting thing that's coming up and then you'll just wander off your own unfolding path by telling yourself that you're open. So it's a very interesting balance that even if the path is diverse and curving and unpredictable and weaves in and out of lineages and things like that, it's still ultimately a very precise and singular thing that you have to discipline yourself to stay with. You've got to be on that edge. Yeah, and that's the thing. And maybe this is a, maybe this is a masculine perspective. I, mean, I wouldn't want to say that it's like this for everybody. But there, there's you know, the commitment to truth or commitment to that which is greater, you know, commit, the commitment is, is completely necessary. And, you know, when, for somebody who's in their promiscuous stage, I see it as a developmental, you know, place. Uh, that's fine. It's okay. You know, but at a certain point, you know, if they really, yeah, at a certain point when they realize that that doesn't get the depth that they're looking for, when they're ready for that, then, then, then you can actually help them. And, um, but that's the point where you really have to kind of uh, commit to that depth. Yeah, a certain point, uh, intention becomes the axis of practice. Yeah, beautiful. You have a lot of practice experiences and experiments up to that point, but at some point it starts to really stand out that, I got to do this, I got to do this on purpose. (laughs) And it is, but it's not an obligation that's being imposed on me from without. It's me getting to the thing that I want to get at, but that requires my mm, voluntary effort. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned, like, we, we've been speaking about the intention, which clarity of intention is even in, um, uh, you know, if you think of the, the, the spiral or the altitudes, you know, it's, it becomes really codified at amber, you know, in, in, in the traditional, uh, traditional spiritual practices in a dogmatic way. But then when we get to green, uh, it's all intuitive. It's all, you know, it's all subjective and it's all, con- it's all context content it's all about you know subjectivity in the context and and in, in a way one replaces the other that's why i was saying here uh, in israel the 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 vipassana community great people great teachers like siri everybody you know really serious but it's extremely green extremely new agey and um to the point of coddling the yogi you know it's you know if it gets if it's too painful then you know it's okay you can go you can you can stretch out or bring your some people bring beanbags into the into the Dharma hall and you know to, to do their practice and it's kind of all allowed and maybe you know now for Israelis who do hardcore army and it's a tough it's a pretty tough society here um, uh, maybe that's that's what they need they just need that really kind of comfortable place to go but um, it completely it completely lacks the intention for it, it lacks goals 
being an awakening or enlightenment, it lacks that goal because, you know, you can't do that because that that's ranking, you know, somebody's at a higher stage of awakening. What you can't, that's all culturally, um, uh, socially constructed as they say. So it's, but it, and it's fine because it's very, it's very subjective and it's very communal, but it's missing that core depth. It's missing that, like, you know, that, that, that intention that can cut a diamond and I think, I'm not saying one is better than the other because we need both, but it's only at second tier, or let's not even talk to the integral. It's only when we kind of, when we, when we go from having intention, uh, uh, context to con content, the context or, or uh, objectivity to subjectivity, and we bring it into a, a greater, you know, a greater integration, that's when we have this kind of intuitive understanding of where we need to go and what needs to happen. Yeah. Uh Another aspect of that is just that notion of shifting out of the flatland into something that has a vertical axis, you know, whether we think of that as hierarchy or not, but that there's actually somewhere to go that I'm in yourself, there's, you have better ways of being, you can get more intense in your being and you might meet other people who are more intense in their beingness than you are. And then you've got to take that seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm sure it's Ken who said it somewhere. I'm sure I read it from Ken that, you know, the greatest depth and the greatest breadth has the greatest value. Not, not in a, not in a uh, uh, value judgment way, but it's just true. There's more depth and there's more breadth there. And uh, in essence, hierarchy is, uh, you know, and, and also, by the way, in Vipassana, I'm not sure if you've done Vipassana, but um, there's different schools in Vipassana, but I, I came from the Mahasi school and it's the progress of insight. 16 developmental stages of insight knowledge followed by four stages of awakening so the whole practice is hierarchical and and you go through those stages you see that you know there's a blueprint of consciousness it unfolds you don't you don't see the blueprint when you're in the state you don't see the stages when you're in the state you don't even see the unfolding but looking back and certainly listening to other yogis you say yeah no it's they're they're going through stages and they're just stages of maturity and in that sense, you know, it's, 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 it's a shame to, to deny hierarchies as socially constructed. Yes, they are also socially constructed. But I mean, I don't, I mean again, this is just preaching to the choir. No, don't, I don't have to say this to you, but I run into that quite a bit. I mean, that's one of the big questions because when I, when I work with people who are emerging green, that's some of the stuff that they've got to work out. And if they're really emerging, then they've been struggling with that already. And then, you know, you get to, yeah. you get to kind of help them uh, move into that. Yeah, and some of that's just the uh, sort of moral and emotional framework that goes with green. But some of it's just you haven't had enough time to make the fine-tuned observations that you need. And when you say looking back, like I think totally. there's a lot of importance to that. Even if you're, whether it's drugs or meditation or spontaneous spiritual experiences, you have these things. And it takes you a lot of time to realize that there were factors involved in producing them, that there were shifts in degrees and stages and things that helped it and things that hindered it. And you can look back on all that and go, oh yeah, with a much more textured, fine-tuned perception, there was a structure to it. At the oh, right. moment, it just struck me like it came out of, blue, out of the blue. But in hindsight, I can see there was this structure. So I think a lot of times that next stage just requires people to have made a lot more observations that they haven't had time to make yet. And, and, and a maturity perspective. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, what strikes me in hearing you say that, because I just watched, um, I guess Bruce just put out another, another one of his dialogues. You were, you were in a panel about UFOlogy, UFOlogy. Yeah. 
Um, I haven't been down the rabbit hole as much as you guys have, uh, but I was listening. I listened about half of it, and, I, and part of me is like, because it's it's a very interesting topic for me. Um, I have no experiences, and and I just all I have is whatever knowledge I have plus an intuition. And, you know, my intuition, how can it not be true? You know, that's, that's basically where I'm at. But listening to you guys, and it was interesting because the whole, all, there were four of you, five or four of you, I believe, yeah? Four. And all of you were like, like um, you know, you were where you were at and you're reaching a little bit into the, into the unknown, like, like exploring. 20 years, we look back at that conversation, we're going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, they were there. You know, we're, whatever, whatever knowledge we have or where, however far the perspective has come in 20 years, it's going to be so clear. You look back and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's where they were at. Or that's where you, you would say that's where we were at. But it's going to be so different, um, I assume. It's going to be, I'm guessing, again, obviously, but I'm assuming that you will be able to look back and say, yeah, well, that conversation was, there was so much unknown at that point that we were kind of, you know, a, part of us were here, part of us were groping in the dark. Yeah, there's a... Uh... What's her name? Ada Loveless, I think. Lord Byron's daughter is sometimes credited as being the first computer programmer, that she wrote these letters explaining to Charles Babbage how his difference engine was going to be used in the future and how it could be used interchangeably to make any kind of different program using binary. She had this whole thing laid out in the 1800s. But it's not until you've got computers that anybody can look back and go, oh, she was ahead of the curve on that one. It's obvious to us now that she was saying the correct thing. She knew it then, but it's only in the hindsight that we have the context to say what was actually moving in the right direction. Well, here's something very weird. I just had the, the strongest deja vu. Nice. As soon as you started talking about Lord Byron, it was like, it was, it, it's, it's happened before. It's weird. I, again, I'm just saying it online and I have no idea. That's why in a way I wasn't even listening. Sorry, but I wasn't, I, I was just like, whoa, this is like, what's going on here? <laughs> Okay, well, there's a million others of us involved in this conversation then. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I glitched in the matrix. <laughs> All right, let me try to do like a question-y thing. Um, All right. How do you think the core principles of Aikido apply mm -hmm. to multiple different lines of development? For example, what are the mental and emotional and maybe even artistic or kinesthetic correlates oh, of the basic awesome. Aikido insights? So you can say the same thing for meditation, but the but the answer would be to flip it, that the that the um, the the different dimensions of integral, the aqua. Uh, I don't even remember what you said. I think I'm still a little bit dizzy from the deja vu. The the core principles of Aikido are universal, just like mindfulness or or whatever uh, unity consciousness or you know God. It, it applies to everything. It fits in everything and everywhere. So um, in that sense, they, they do and they don't. It depends on our developmental level. But um, if we just, if I, can I use, like, is it okay if I use aqua? Yeah, to, uh, I mean, is that what you were asking? Yeah. Because well, actually, was, here's sort of yeah. underneath that where I'm getting at is sort of, because uh, when people think of Aikido, they think a lot of the physical dimension of the practice, yeah. right? And there's sets of moves, and those moves are based on insights into how interactions occur and how bodies move and things like that, right? Okay. Yeah, so still, still, still in the physical realm. Where do you see those kinds of moves and insight patterns showing up, say, emotionally, showing up mentally, showing up in other areas of the mandala? Well, those moves and, and pattern, uh, physical patterns don't. Or you might make some interesting connections, but it's only the underlying principles. That's what I was saying before. They're universal. So they, they apply all times, all places, 
all circumstances, uh, whether you're here or not here, it doesn't really matter. Um, but um, you know, how can what's the best way to go with this? Um, let's put it this way. So Aikido is um, what's Aikido is a unique martial, unique in the martial arts world, um, in the fact that it's 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 design and its intention and its 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 philosophical spiritual intention is positive sum. So it's it's a win 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 martial art. Whereas every other martial art. Um, even something like Tai Chi, as a matter of fact, uh, is zero-sum. Now, there are surely martial artists who've made that breakthrough, and whatever they do is going to have a, uh, a healing effect and return, you know, uh, what do you say, uh, uh, restore some wholeness through a, a martial conflict. Um, but most arts are, there's a winner and a loser, so there's zero-sum. Aikido is the only one that, by design, is positive-sum. That doesn't mean that Aikidoka, that the, the, the Aikido practitioners are able to do that because that's, that's, that's a really high order. You know, the, 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 it's like you, the founder of Aikido, a man named Morihei Oshiba, he had, he had a very profound awakening. He was already a, um, one of the top three martial artists in Japan in his 50s. I think he had this, this spontaneous non-dual awakening. Mm -hmm. And what came together was an emerging of Budo and love. Of. Nabuto is the martial way. You know, you think of Japan and the samurai, they, they raised martial art to a very high, partly stoic, but also partly uh, uh, almost like a knightly, um, uh, you know, knights of the round table, knightly ideal, where Bu, which is the, the Chinese character for martial, um, has it's, it's, the character's etymology is to stop a spear, which basically means to, to, um, to prevent uh, uh, aggression. And um, in that sense, it's fighting for a higher purpose, fighting the good fight. And um, as you know, with samurai, the whole mythos of sa samurai is that they will, they would give up their life for a higher cause, usually their, their, uh, their daimyo or their lord or whatever it is. They, they give up their life in a second. They would fight the good fight, even if it meant losing their life, or especially if it meant losing their life. I think they were looking for that. Um, whereas love, what do you think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and, and you know, all the, the, the amazing lovers out there, the, the, the outrageous radical lovers out there, they would, they would preserve life. Really, love is all about embracing and preserving life. And if you take that to its extreme, even if it means losing my own life. Yeah, so love, you know, if we're just radical lovers, we're going to, you know, we're going to give everything, even if it means it kills me. This just, there's no question, no question. Whereas a, a, war, a warrior, a spiritual warrior, a warrior for a higher cause is going to never give up, even if it means I have to take another person's life. So take those two things as separate and there's zero sum. Somebody dies in the end, you know, for, for a greater cause, but somebody, okay, the whole world is for the greater good. Everybody's, uh, what do you say, preserved, but I have to die. So that's a zero sum thing. Oh, Sensei, the, the founder of Aikido, somehow through his awakening, and he was able to do this, um, was able to kind of take that paradox and, and, and resolve it within his own uh, uh, spiritual awakening. And the expression of that was Aikido, where Budo is love, where, where the high, fighting the good fight is, is an act of love. And the result is always a, a restoration of wholeness. So at no point would he, would he uh, in his art or the design of Aikido, is to um, is to fully meet aggression, but with full receptivity, and um, and any harm that comes to the other person is them harming themselves off of your 
being in a way, off of your form. So, um, so that um, is expressed in all of the uh, uh, expressed. Hang on. In a way, the the techniques reflect that. When the pra- but if the pra- if the practice isn't internalized, it's just a reflection. So still, there's still going to be a lot of zero sum happening, and it's a path. So we go through purification, and hopefully you're in a school that, or you're with a teacher who's not too, um, too ego identified. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of dickheads in martial arts. A lot of really good people too, but you know, it does, it, it, it you can make the Darth Vader move, you know, it, it, you get power and it can, it can feed the ego. Yeah. So, um, but if, but if they continue to practice and you, you hopefully have a, a good lineage that, that helps you with that, um, you'll continue to purify and you'll, your, your art will become more effective. The, the output will be greater and the, out will, the output would always be holistic, but there'll be less in, in input because it's more of a state of being. And it, of course, there's a lot of technical, takes years of technical training to get it down. But um, what, makes, what makes that difficult is not that it's just difficult, but it completely goes a, a, against our, our basic survival instincts, our basic intelligence, you know, the kind of red level, beige red level survival instincts, which, you know, whenever our boundaries are threatened, we, we either fight, flight, freeze, you know, approach or avoid, or we go into some in, emotional manipulation or, you know, uh, aggressive or passive aggressive or whatever it is. And that's what's so beautiful about when Amber comes online. And by the way, all martial arts that you think of um, that have been codified, they're, they're from the Amber level, you know, and, and when Amber comes online, then you're taught to, to, often it's a suppression, but really it's you're taught to contain your instincts of fight, flight, freeze with awareness so, you, so the higher intelligence can start to function. And that, that comes online in Amber. So, you know, I could go into this whole kind of like uh, developmental levels of Aikido actually emerges more towards uh, a green and um, uh, actually turquoise or, or teal, I should say. Um, but where do you want to go with this? Well, you know, what really fascinates me is the problem of the integration of aggression, which is a very difficult one at uh, all of the levels. Yes. Right? And sometimes it looks like, you know, people pretend they don't have aggression and then they have weird explosions or they're aggressive against people who seem aggressive or they yes. just have lower level freakouts or, or they're passive aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> or, or some kind of pathological um, self-destructive urge, you know, yeah, right. that sure. someone yeah. might want to be a warrior because they secretly want to either destroy or get destroyed that they're hoping secretly for that moment when they have to, sacrifice themselves for something even if it isn't a thing worth sacrificing themselves for yeah right that's a very strange you know the the love of death instinct in there is very intriguing it's like a pathological version of the desire for transcendence and surrender so so let's look at the so the, so let's look at the desire for transcendence and surrender so where it comes in line in, in aikido because even though most of the aikido in the world it's it's it, and again you know maybe it sounds a bit judgmental but you know, I've been around. <laughs> um, most Aikido in the world, good stuff, good people, like serious teachers and serious practitioners and, and cool people. Um, like I said, some dickheads, but whatever. Um, uh, but they're most, at best, the closest they get to spirituality is kind of with the philosophy of the art. So, um, you know, because you spend a lot of time just doing, Aikido, a lot of years doing Aikido and not really hardcore 
um, spiritual practice, but where if we bring into this, the state's training, the spiritual core into the art, it, it really touches exactly what you're talking about. And um, the, the, uh, the, what Aikido is at, at its spiritual core, something that I call the Aikido koan. And, you know, Aikido is, it's, it, you know, I, you know the meaning of Aikido? The, there's three Japanese characters. I is, is harmony or joining or merging, returning to wholeness. Key is life energy. So your energy and my energy start to, you know, either we're, we're missing each other or we're conflicting or whatever um, coming together. And Do is a higher path of practice. You know, not, a, not an ordinary path of practice, but a higher path in terms of higher than my uh, fears and desires of my, my limited sense of self. So when you when you bring the the core of the art the the essence of the art there, um, I, I have this practice called the Aikido Koan, and the Aikido Koan in in the midst of conflict. Yeah. So that's sorry. That's why I say Aikido. It's um, it's the path. It's it's in a way that the translation is the the way of harmony, but it's really not a way of harmony. It's the way of conflict. Harmony is the byproduct. So if there's no conflict, well, there's no, you don't need to do Aikido. But when boundaries start to rub up against each other and create that, you need that dynamic, dynamic tension to, to do Aikido. And in that, the, the problem is that, that as soon as we have, get close to boundaries or either energetically or in my mind or physically creating that dynamic tension, um, we have the, the conditions for, for doing Aikido, returning to wholeness. The problem is we also have the conditions for fight, flight, freeze, you know, for that aggression to come up. So we learn to kind of, again, like I was saying with awareness. Now, in that space, um, we do the Aikido Koan. The Aikido Koan is something we just kind of reflect and say to ourselves four lines. The first one is, I'm not passive. You know, here comes conflict, uh, passive, yeah. Number one, I'm not passive. Number two, I'm not aggressive. You know, here comes conflict, you go after it. So, okay, I'm not passive, I'm not aggressive. So I'm not passive, I'm not aggressive. And the third line, I'm not passive aggressive. And in a way, those are the three options for the ego. The, 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 you know, the, 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 when I say ego, I don't mean it in a bad way. You know, it's just as we are. But the, the ego, the limitless sense of self, only has three options. Really, there's only three things we can figure out to do in a, um, in, a, in a moment of conflict. And that's either to be passive, aggressive, or passive, aggressive. So the Aikido Koan first line is, I'm not passive, I'm not aggressive, I'm not passive aggressive. And then the fourth line is, who am I? And you bring the eternal, the eternal Koan, the eternal, excuse me, the eternal Koan into a moment of conflict. When everything inside of you is screaming to either be aggressive or passive or, or passive or passive aggressive, and you ask the question, who am I? And, and now I'm not saying that's the answer for the re resolution of conflict, but that's the conditions. It creates the conditions for an answer to emerge. And um, what does Ken say? The more um, enlightenment is an accident and the more you practice the more you become meditation makes you accident prone right yeah so it's the same thing it's the same thing so you practice those conditions and you know the the, the return to wholeness is an accident but those conditions the more you you're able to kind of create those conditions because that's the only thing you can do there's no that's the only thing you can fiddle with you can't fiddle with anything else but that will make make you more accident prone for return to wholeness the resolution of conflict 
So I'm not sure if that is a very long-winded answer, but I'm not sure if that gets to the point you're talking about because the transcendence and the, the, the fear of death or the self, you know, death thing and transcendence is completely related in a way. It's a very interesting, you know, there's some absolutely practical elements to conflict and then there's some sneaky elements that are sort of unnecessary and self-sabotaging. And, you know, martial arts and meditation play well together in the sense that in terms of real conflict, like visceral outward conflict, then you have these different sympathetic nervous system responses and you need to develop a wisdom out of that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we act like there's conflict in every dimension of life, whether there is or not. And then that's where the meditation work has to come in because you're not really, you know, somebody bothers you or see a street sign you think is spelled wrong and suddenly you're rehaving like a dog's trying to bite you. It's very totally. strange. <laughs> or just close down and meditate, close your eyes and yeah. meditate. And then, you know, a few minutes, just take a few minutes for the first conflict to arise. You make this, uh, there's a shift because in the overt conflict, there's a real health logic to the ego trying to preserve itself by combat or escape and withdrawal. But when we have those things firing in us in every other aspect of life, and when you sit down to meditate, and you watch yourself, you notice that you're having those responses to every little thing, even ordinary perceptions seem like the justification for withdrawal into a reactive mode. Like, and totally. so noticing our foolishness in that regard is one of my favorite kinds of meditation because it seems to spontaneously release it when you look yeah, <laughs> how totally unnecessary my recoil well, you, from the world is. <laughs> you, we befriend who we actually are, not who we think we are, but who we actually are. And, and not only that, you know, if we, if we go back to the spiral or think of the altitudes, you know, as you know, every level is, is, is its own intelligence. So these little micro, you know, um, reactions on how to, you know, conscious or unconscious, they are forms of intelligence, you know, just not integrated. When they're integrated, then we can choose if we want to reduce down to, you know, like if... If a tiger walks through the door, then I, I, I hope that my flea will be highly, highly refined, you know, high, fine-tuned uh, intelligence. You know, I'm not going to sit down and meditate. But if my wife walks in the door, you know, I, maybe I would run away. I don't know. <laughs> She'll trigger me more than a, a tiger. <laughs> but I know that with her, I can sit down and meditate. And it's, 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 it may even be the appropriate thing to do at the time. But that's what's so beautiful about, about integration, you know? And, and we do have to befriend and, you know, up and down the spiral, up and down the spiral. That's why I was saying before, you know, this first the two to one, the second tier to first, first tier, I'm finding in a way my second time around after about 10 years or 12 years of this, uh, I'm finding that there's just another, it's just a certain, another aspect of intelligence there that I wasn't getting before. And before it was a little bit of frustration that people weren't evolving quick enough, or they were fighting, fight, resisting the theory, as you know how that can be. But now that all that's all that's out of me, you know. It's, and I just it's just really meeting people where they're at, and you know, if they show up authentically with with a with a pure intention, everything else is fine. It really it's all just you know it's all self-emerging, self-purifying, self-liberating, and then, you know, unfolding slower or faster, and none of that really matters. What is the Aikido response to systemic racism? 
Oh, you asked that question again. Yeah, we just no, did it. It was one of the things that caught my eye when I was poking around on some of the websites. And I thought, that's really interesting because mm. normally people wouldn't associate Aikido with some sort of, you know, general social and systemic pattern of insight. Yeah, I mean, look, we'll put the whole question of systemic racism aside if it's okay. I mean, we can go there, but I'm not really an expert in it. But, but I understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. There's a lot of you know, there, there, it's there and it's not there and you know, all that stuff. Um, uh, but, I, but I, again, I'm not an expert, so I can't really go into that. But, but what, what is the Aikido response to that? Is precisely what I was saying before: is that Budo is love. So if you know, if if there is such thing, if there is such a thing as an systemic uh when i hear systemic i hear socially imposed bias when i hear uh uh episodic and maybe it's just you know individuals whatever but wherever such a systemic conscious or unconscious bias exists um it this you know as a part of the system you and i are part of this human social cultural system the system needs to awaken for, for any, 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 when I say, I wouldn't even say change. If there's a systemic bias there, it's a, there's a dysfunction in the system. As the system wakes up, it will become, automatically becomes more functional, you know, through a process of, you know, painful process, whatever. But it will become more functional. So, um, so Aikido is just that. It's, a, you know, it's, it's, we wake up to another way of being, another, you know, and we have an intention, again, this comes back to that, maybe masculine goal intention that we're looking for wholeness and then hopefully letting that intention go, you know, letting the agenda go and um, uh, fighting the good fight, but never, never, never putting the other person out of your heart. And, you know, you think of Martin Luther King and Gandhi and, and I, I was never the activist type, although I do admire Mandela and the Dalai Lama and people like that completely admire them. And I forget who it was. It, there's some some black activist, a woman. She was a priest, a preacher, priest maybe, and also a, a civil rights activist in the in the 50s. I forget her name, but she said that um, when 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 um, when they draw circles and kick me out, I draw a bigger circle and, and bring them in. So you fight the good fight, but you don't kick people out of your heart, you know. And that, and that, that that's the, those for for the longest time, developmentally speaking, up until a certain point, it's a, it's an on-off switch. They're either in my heart or they're not in my heart. I'm either fighting the good fight and not loving them, or I'm loving them and I'm not fighting with them. But at a certain point, and it is a developmental privilege. Yeah, it is a develop. You know, you, we have to struggle and work with this stuff. We, the the switch is on full on for both of those. And you might be a, just a badass motherfucker and, you know, fight the good fight, but you're not kicking them out of your heart. Or you may be uh, completely embracing and compassionate, but you can still say no, you know, you can still draw a line. So <laughs> it's, it's a simplistic answer, but really the, you know, the, the principles of Aikido at the core, just like spirituality are simple. They're just, because they're, they're universal. Now, how that happens on where the rubber meets the road would be very complex and depending on the situation, of course. Yeah, that made me think back to earlier in the conversation when we were discussing intention, right? And the idea that I think a lot of people don't want to or aren't uh, ready, practiced at bringing effort into their emotional life. 
because making that bigger circle is not the automatic thing your heart wants to do. It requires you um, going through some discomfort, making an intention, making an effort, wanting to do that, struggling with yourself to some degree to be the yeah. orchestrator of your emotions in a higher context. So I think yeah. a lot of people are, you know, they understand it physically. They think, well, okay, physically you have to work a little harder to get something done. But emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, should I have to use any efforts? <laughs> Only if you want to get something done. And it also requires us, you know, cult uh, you know, cultural waves. It also requires us for to become deeply green, because green does that the best, to a fault, as as you as you know, it goes it goes too far and it, it has a massive, a massive blind spot there. But um, uh, and and then our trick is to is to you know embrace where where what should be embraced but also to point out the blind spot and it's we, we just live in such an interesting time now that green is uh, uh or, or the regressive left i should say you know or regressive progressivism um is so sneaky and so tricky that um and there's just very, very few voices that can stand it well i mean there's lots of solid voices out there but they're outnumbered, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I'm thinking of uh, the singer Leonard Cohen. I saw him interviewed. He'd been a Zen practitioner for the last couple of decades of his life. Yeah, and the right. interviewer asked him what attracted him to Zen. And he said, absolutely nothing. I just met a guy who had more going on than I did. And if he'd been a Muslim, I'd be a Muslim right now. That's interesting. So yeah. my question for you is, the paths that you followed, were you attracted to the concept and practices of the path, or were you primarily, or in some instances, drawn in by somebody you met, who you thought, well, maybe this person's got something? No, it was, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty direct. Uh, you know, when I was three, I had a pretty strong uh, spiritual experience. It maybe lasted three to five minutes had no way of um, interpreting it in, 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 you know, as a three-year-old, but the memory stuck with me forever, forever and always. And completely unconsciously, it was always a reference point. And I was also kind of a very sporty kid, you know, out there either playing sports or doing martial arts. I was really loved, you know, blown away by martial arts, Bruce Lee. And, um, and but I wasn't into the, I loved competition in sports, but I never had felt like I had to, you know, beat everybody to be the best. Um, I just loved the competition. I loved, I loved the sport. I loved being in the middle of it. And then when I saw, the first time I saw Aikido, I realized, oh, that's what I'm looking for because there was that spiritual element that, that I knew, that I, I tasted, and, and, and it was right there. And then it was, it was a full martial art and it was still kind of, you know, preserving that. So that was it. It was very clear at that point. It met a, a bunch of your needs. Boom, just like that, just like that. <laughs> And, and in terms of Vipassana, um, you know, I, was in, I lived in Japan for eight years and I, I, I visited a few Zen monasteries, but I never did a formal Zen practice there. Um, but I read, the Zen culture is everywhere in Japan and I read a lot about Zen and, and I read a certain amount about, I guess, Tibetan Buddhism as much as it's cool, but it, it didn't really draw me. And as soon as I started reading uh, from Western Vipassana teachers, like Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, this crowd, um, I it's just like, no, that's, it just clicked with me. And I knew that that's, that's what I wanted to do. And the reason I was attracted to Buddhism was something intuitive. It just, 
of of all the, the, the that was out there that was the thing that just it was just somehow there and i don't know why but it was uh it was it was a clear draw and it took me some years before i got there but but um you know i kind of came home with both of those arts in a way early life spiritual experience is interesting and i think understudied because I'd be interested in knowing whether there's a high correlation between people who recall the flavor of early personal spiritual experiences and people who later have the confidence of following their own path or finding the path that works for them, right? That if it lingers in the back of your psyche and gives you something, whether there's, I would, I would be surprised if it weren't the case that people who've come to be very confident in the evolving success of their own path weren't basing that on the energy or the experience or the flavor of some really early experiences that maybe not everybody gets. And if you well, don't I get think, those, then what do you have to judge things by? You sort of go in blind. I suppose there's, there's you know, in kids who don't have those, but I, I, something in me uh, uh, assumes that it's more common than not, but the recognition, number one, and the memory of it is probably, obviously, is more rare. Um, in my case, I can look back and I can tell you exactly the flavor, exactly what it was. It was a very, it was a non, uh, it, it was some minutes of non-conceptual reality, pure observer. Not a non-dual experience, but with the but pure observer. Really, no Miles was there, but it was from the observer. There was a witness to it all. And, um, and then that's kind of ended up being, I did dabble a little bit with some non-dual practices and even, even had some profound non-dual experiences. But the first chance I got to go commit to a path was, was Vipassana, which is mindfulness, which is a dualistic practice that creates the observer. And it was just, you know, that felt, I felt like, and it was, it's, it's a tough practice because it's a lot of purification and it unfolds beautifully over a long period of time. It's, it's, it's the, you know, it's a, it's a gradual path as they say. Having done that, like just like I said before, that I that I have done a very little bit of uh, a shamanic practice, medicine practice, um, and then I've also done uh, a fair amount of non-dual practice, and uh, very very different experiences, but something about them is completely the same. You know, then it well they're completely the same in that they're absolute. And um, in my case, if I look back, I would guess that the reason I was drawn to vipassana was because of that childhood experience. And, and also Vipassana required, um, who was it? Uh, uh, Thoreau said, beware of any activity that requires the purchase of new clothes. <laughs> and Vipassana didn't require me to buy anything, didn't buy anything, just sit down and practice. So, and plus when I went to Japan, I bought a lot of clothes, so-called, you know, I took on a lot of Japanese forms and, uh, and um, I became Japanese for five years. And in the last three years that I was there, I was really taking those forms off. And, and by the time I went to Buddhism, I wasn't interested in doing that anymore. So. I lived in Osaka for about six months, but it wasn't quite long doing? enough to go native. Uh, what were you doing there? <laughs> uh, teaching English and being with yeah, a girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Thank, thank God for the English teaching. I did that for eight years, but you know, I was, it was, it was like 15 hours a week and then I was just doing Aikido full time. Yeah, it's a yeah. lovely landscape to explore. One of the interesting things, you know, sometimes you can go to a country and you run into a lot of people who know about that country's traditions, and other times you don't. Because when I was in Japan, 
And I would ask people about Zen. They would all say, oh, yes, yes. And then they would ask me about it because they didn't know right. anything. I had the same experience in Norway. I went to Norway and, you know, some of my yeah. ancestors are from there. And I would ask them about Vikings and mythology. And, you know, yeah. they all didn't know anything. They vaguely heard about it in elementary school. And then it wasn't really part of their life. I always was fascinated by that. Yeah, you, the, it, Japan's a bizarre place. It's a wonderful place. It's the first place I actually had a, a simultaneously dual experience of white privilege. As you know, the white American, you, the doors just doors open for you. Really, it's you know you're 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 like a I wouldn't say God. Yeah, no, well. they treat you like a celebrity. You know, they treat you like. But number one, and on the other, at the same time, it's incredibly incredibly subtle. But incredibly racist, you know. Yeah. Japanese, they're the purity of of they're, they're kind of believing the purity of their race, and they're the chosen people. And um, you know, we were talking about systemic racism before, and it was interesting. Now, the racism there was never so bad. The the, the big difference was that I chose to be there, and I could choose to leave, choose to leave any time. And it was uh, it was always subtle and 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 indirect. But um, yeah, that was an interesting experience, you know, holding both of those. The idea of the sort of naturalness of intergroup antagonism is interesting, right? Because we often think of racism as some unnatural imposition that we're being taught. And there is a huge element of that for sure. But every group has this friction with every other group as soon as they can identify each other in themselves. And taking that seriously is interesting. And it has a similarity to martial arts, which is the first step in a way, even if you're moving towards a kind of non-dual interactive practice like Aikido, it, you have to take uh, interactive hostile intention seriously, whether it's between people or between parts of yourself or between groups. And I think one of the things that's uh, oddly common today is that a lot of people, maybe a lot of liberal people, don't want to acknowledge that there is or can be any antagonism. And that makes them dumb when it comes to antagonism. Oh, and also passive-aggressive in, 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 in denial and in denial that that's, that that's actually happening. But I think it's up and down the spiral that there's this, there's, there's this sameness and difference. The sameness always makes us feel coherent and difference makes us on some level freaking out. And that could be whether we're like tribal tribes or, you know, ethnic groups or, uh, uh, you know, if you think of your, your recent panel on ufos what can be more there's nothing more different there's <laughs> nothing more different than that possibility and and, and what, what you guys were talking beautifully about is that how it's whatever it is it's so so far beyond any meaning making that we can come up with we're really grasping there but that freak out that can that would freak out that you know how can if you know i, I However, this happens, should it happen or whenever it happens, and I'm sure it'll happen at some point, um, you know, we'll be damn lucky if, if we don't send nuclear bombs towards their way. We'd, we'd be damn stupid to do that, but we'll be damn lucky if that doesn't happen because it's, it, it, it's guaranteed to freak, it, freak out the global system. It takes a lot of practice in order to not be traumatized by things that are peculiar. And I think the world situation now, like, yes, there is economic problems in a lot of the countries. Yes, there is a viral problem. However, yeah. most people are not dying from the virus, but most people are facing this really intense ambiguity about what's going on in the world. 
which sort of um, exacerbates something that's been building up for a while, which is, you know, do we trust the systems? Do we know what's going on? How is life going to operate? Are things ever going back to normal? There's this huge buildup of peculiarity, which is in a way a bit like encountering the other who is always peculiar and different. Totally, and totally. You're either yeah. ready because you're, you've practiced dealing with peculiarity and otherness or you're not ready, and then there's a risk that that's going to become traumatic and put you back into more primitive response patterns. Yeah, and you said it takes a lot of practice not to be traumatized. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, and part of the practice is is healing our trauma, you know, shadow work or, or trauma work. And the other practice is to is to enter into marginally traumatic situations that are just, you know, just so beyond us in order to, to develop the resilience, you know, to really kind of, you know, it, it, in a way it's got to go both ways. And that's what I love about the, the practice of Aikido and the practice of meditation. And by the way, the practice of business is that it's constantly pushing me up into the unknown, pushing me uh, into, into the unknown, pushing me up against, I should say, the unknown where everything in my system is like freaking out. And at the same time, my intention is, you know, dragging me, kicking and screaming forward. And that somehow, that somehow creates the conditions for evolutionary tension. Yeah, I, I mean, I keep coming back in this discussion to the feature of intentionality. And like you've been saying, we don't want to put it all on intentionality. It might be a little bit too masculine, but there's a huge role for intentionality in terms of, like you're saying, uh, exposure therapies, Right when you expose yourself to small amounts of traumatic things, the, the essence of that seems to be that it has to be voluntary. If somebody else exposes you right. to traumatic things, it doesn't really work. It has to be voluntary, and there's a parallel there with every kind of meditation practice because no matter what practice you do, you are intentionally modifying your attention in some fashion. So all of these are, you know, they run that intent intention process to a higher level, it energizes our intentional faculties. It's in state stages in shadow, as you mentioned it, because you, what you're talking about is in, in meditation in states, it takes us to the edge of that unknown, stages as well, you know, when, when we, I guess what, what, I guess many things can move us from one stage to the next, but the, the limitations of the previous stage will really kind of like, at a certain point, the dissatisfaction will cause you to, and that's damn uncomfortable. And then shadow, you know, the, the working with our, our shadow content or, or past traumas, um, it's the degree to, to, you know, a little hair of the dog, you know, little by little by little until we're able to relive the, the split. And then that, that's the beginning of the healing process. Shadow's intriguing. I mean, uh, we were talking about aggression a little while ago. And what's the book? Ego, Hunger, and Aggression by Fritz Perls. It was like an early okay. gestalt therapy book. Really good one. But he kind of introduced and really clarified the notion of retrojection, which is that you're, the things you encounter in yourself might be the opposite of the things you actually contain. And that's one of Wilbur's arguments for why you need to supplement meditation work with shadow work. Can you say that again? The, the, things, um, that we... the things that we encounter in ourselves might not be the things we actually contain. And then the example is... We encounter in ourselves. Yeah. For example, if I encounter my fear, right, right and I'm trying to be mindful and be engaged but detached and let it move through me. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. But if it turns out that my fear is actually because of my aggression that I refuse to acknowledge. And yeah. so instead of feeling my urge to hurt, I feel that I'm about to be hurt and experience fear. 
Now I've been witnessing something which is the opposite of what I actually contain. And that might right. move me farther down a, a divergent path. Right, right. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where meditation won't do the, do the trick. It that's what you need to supplement it with some kind of shadow work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, I was also thinking about this, like, like, um, you know, if we think of the altitudes, the way that the way that um, I've kind of worked with this in Aikido is through a practice of the, that I call the evolution of response, because, you know, the whole idea is that we're in a, a place of choice and that at Amber, Amber puts us in self-responsibility more than anything else. I mean, I guess there's a lot of values there in Amber, but self-responsibility and, and you need a lot of awareness. And if it's, especially if it's coming out of a spiritual tradition, a lot of awareness there. Buddhism, Christianity, etc. Then, as you move to orange, um, oh, so that, that in in my developmental system in Aikido, I call that the uh, 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 um, uh, awareness response. So the previous two stages, uh, the first stage is survival response, survival reaction, and then emotional reaction, and these are developmental, but they're but they're largely choiceless. Then there's a stage of the choice maker where you actually kind of create that intention. That intention is, is, is the, it's, it's a part of, it's a strata that without that, the other levels don't develop, that it's got to be there. You know, you can't bypass that. And then you have the, that's the choice maker. Then you have the, um, the awareness response, which would be um, amber. No, that would be orange. Sorry, choice maker is amber. Orange is awareness response. Then you have the intuitive response, which would be green. And that's where it becomes, uh, it start, it's not intersubjective yet, it's totally subjective. So in, in awareness response that I start to wake up to the fact that I am an aware and awake system. An intuitive response, because I've awoken up to my interiors and I know all the all this stuff we're talking about, whether it's shadow or, or, or states or whatever, I become so aware of that, that I, when I start to connect with others, I can become aware, intuitively aware of what's arising in them and what's arising in the context that there's a certain, my, my deep objectivity in creating the witness shifts into subjectivity and I'm able to kind of really feel the interior of the other person. So I can feel the, the, I can feel aggression at its source or I can feel intention at its source, become intuitively aware of the person's intention, their needs, their desires, et cetera. And that would be kind of green level. And, and then imagine doing Aikido like that. It's very nice, it's very cooperative, it's very sensitive, it's very in the moment. And, and yet, but it's still not intersubjective. And that would be the next, uh, the next stage or, or um, turquoise, and um, which is called the uh, um, creative response, which is systemic, is that when one awaken aware system, like you or me or whatever, I'm, interfaces with another awaken aware system in a conflict, but they, and, and the awakeness and the awareness doesn't close down, the systems awareness, the systemic awareness doesn't close down and they interface, then they become an awake and aware system. The two of the two, we join together in an awake and aware system and that system has its own intelligence. So whatever emerges from that intelligence is Aikido, is it, the nature of it is Aikido itself. And it's it, at that point, it's like, you know, the, you, if you've seen some of them, you know, the, the most coolest uh, choreographed martial arts movies where it's just, perfection what they're doing and nobody ever gets killed and nobody you know it, that's kind of what happens in aikido at that level but it takes two to tango and to reach that level is is it is it is a developmental privilege it is a developmental um uh, capacity that until you're there 
a lot of people do Aikido in Flatland, you know, that's just where they're at. And maybe even their dojos, that's all they're doing. Um, or they're rather green. They become very post progressive in a way. And it's all about subjectivity and, and you know, let's do this together. And, but it's about us and then canceling out them. And, um, and then at some points, you know, you'll find people that are really trying to work, you know, taking that next evolutionary step where really coming together in this systemic awareness. And it's, most, it's, it's the most beautiful practice you'll see. It's incredible. And I shouldn't say it's the most beautiful practice you'll see. That's true. But it's the most incredible experience. I mean, that's really where, where life becomes interesting. And fight, uh, yeah, conflict at that point is just what, it's like, you know, life is good and then it's not. And then conflict is, is what's going to restore mental wholeness. And, you know, and, then, and it all becomes embraced at that point. Everything we're talking about is able to, we're able to contain, not just contain, you know, as, a, as, a, as an observer of everything that's going on, but also inhabit as a subjective experiencer of, of everything that's happening. And then it all happens. And then, then the intelligence moves through us, of us, and as us, if that makes any Sense. Sure. <laughs> there's yeah. there's no other way to say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And, you know, when people go through some of that stuff, I'm sure keto practitioners have moments like that all along their pathway, but they don't Glimpses. see what's going into it and they aren't able to take responsibility for it. Totally, totally. You know, because the forms are, like I said, designed, so they'll have they'll have taste. They'll, you can enter great flow states in Aikido. And they'll have taste here and there. But it's, it's, in a way, it's, it's either, it's more state experience. It's not really an altitude, which is, which is an interesting thing because you can have both state experiences in terms of flow states or maybe intense um, focus in Aikido. But in terms of altitude, it's, it, you know, it just takes practice. And I don't know what the percentage of the world's population is today, but it's, it's still, it's pretty damn small still. The um, associating orange with awareness makes a lot of sense. I think uh, that was sort of epitomized in the, I think therefore I am statement by Descartes, right? Yeah. Sort of yeah, a self-reflective right. awareness. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. To my, my recent thinking, and, I would describe it, green it, as, sorry. yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No. And, and orange is rather democratic. So the yeah. awareness is no longer, uh, uh, what do you say? Uh, constrained to the hierarchy. You're, you're allowed to be as aware as you want. Nobody's stopping you. Exactly. And then it turns out that the aware systems have all these other components that they weren't noticing. That's where green really comes in. I think the, to me, the underlying logic of green is sort of the enfolding of externalities. Right? Again? So we've been leaving out our intuition. We've been leaving out our unconscious. We've been leaving out the environment. We've been leaving out marginalized groups. There's a lot of stuff we've been ignoring from the point of view of our awareness. We've got to fold that in. So then you have that more or less successful. And then there's a question of how could these more complex systems interface with each other in a way that produces more than the sum of the parts. Right, but to, fold, to fold that in, you have to equalize everything. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's the trick. If, that, if that's a temporary equalization to really unfold, great. But you've got to actually start to, you know, allow back yeah, in. You've got to not – because anybody at any level can temporarily have their parts balanced by accident or by fortuitous circumstance. But noticing that that's what you have to do and getting better at the skill of doing that, making that process into an object of your awareness – that's the thing that really opens up at the second tier, I think. Yeah, that, right. That's what enables a much more frequent and more intense and more responsible access to these 
transpersonal states where a third higher force comes through in our interactions. Yeah, and and oh, but in order to have that, I really I've got to I've got to get layman subjectively, and I, as much as I can, you know. And, and there's uh, there's there's great practices for that in green, and it's really it's really the best. Or I've got to get the other, you know. I've got to take their perspective as much as I can, and really equalize everything. And then when I can do that, then I have to get out of it. I have to again get out of it without without losing it in a way. Yeah, one of the problems at Green then is the people who figured out how to get the subjectivity of the other in one particular area, if, if they're just starting out, they become obsessed with doing that. And they can go around to everybody else and say, look, you guys are all failing to get this version of the other. You're yeah, all right. fucked up. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. It's like the tolerance. The to to I can tolerate anything except intolerance <laughs> and then it's just cancel 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 and and you know yeah green really opens up all the pieces we need it just doesn't know how to put them together stably because to put them together stably you've got to be able to operate in territory that previously seemed paradoxical right you got to see sameness and difference as as somehow functionally the same thing <laughs> yeah right and you got to stop deconstructing the fuck out of everything yeah. Because, you know, except, except my perspective, you know, <laughs> deconstruct everything except yeah. what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying. And, and that's the whole kind of blind spot there. Yeah. Or you've got to understand that there's a time and a place for deconstruction and you've got to weave it in and that it moves toward a reconstruction. It's not just operating yeah. on its own and deconstructing everything. It actually has a purpose. It fits into a larger system. I mean, maybe it's even better to say it moves towards a recognition of natural structures. Yeah. You know, the one, like what we're talking about are natural structures. You know, it's not, uh, and it's not something that you and I invented. Exactly. Uh, and that fits with the trajectory of science. I mean, the, you know, one of the great shifts in the 20th century, thanks to computers largely, is the introduction of chaos and complexity as scientifically analyzable phenomenon. Things that previously seemed like they had no pattern are interesting to us, but they do have a pattern. It's just not a pattern that's immediately available to the linear mind. Right, right. There's yeah, fascinating stuff, huh? Okay, we're probably getting near the end. It's been it's been it's been a great discussion, Layman. Yeah, I'm having fun. It's been great talking to you. And this is why I usually ask people at the end of this one is I'm gonna to talk to somebody else. They're also putting things forward online. What would you ask them? What would you want to ask the next person? Uh, we're talking about people who are, are trying somehow to put forward some kind of higher perspectives through internet communication. What would I want to ask them? Uh, the first thing that comes to me, yeah. integralists, we tend to, we tend to be insular. You know, we can get into really high flying conversations that other people might find like Chinese or something like that which is fine. I mean, I, that, that's okay. And I like that. And I can do more of that. Um, but um, I would guess I would ask them, what, what are your, what are your best uh, uh, first, second tier to first tier practices that meet people where they're at, but don't leave people where they're at? Because I really believe that, you know, all the problems that we see in the world today, um, 
whatever the, res the, the, the solution is, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to come from a higher perspective. It's going to come through evolving ourselves. And, and um, in that sense, I think that, um, that this gift that we've been given, this perspective that we've worked hard to get, that we've actually been given or awakening to, we will continue to awaken to, has the responsibility of, of, of you know, the Bodhisattva vow, of awakening others to that perspective as well, without forcing it down their throat. <laughs> so so how, how, how do you meet people where they're at, but not leave them where they're at? That's basically... Question, Fantastic question. I love it. And I feel terrific. This has been a real nice time. Yeah, Layman, I enjoyed it. It's very, very nice. Where, where are you living, by the way? I'm on the north shore of Lake Superior. Do you know where that is? In Illinois. Well, I'm from Dallas. Uh, a, little, a little bit above. Yeah, so I'm in Canada. Just on are that. you Canadian? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I used to live on the west coast. I've been out here in Ontario for about two years. Right. Yeah, okay. My father used to live in Montreal. I spent uh, 10 years, uh, 10 summers of my youth uh, in Montreal. Loved it. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully someday we'll... Uh, we'll yeah, we'll let's do this group. again sometime. We've, yeah, I'm that's sure great. we've got a follow-up. <laughs> would love to. I, I'm gonna, I've, I've subscribed to your, to your channel. I'm going to follow what you're doing, so... All right, cheers, man. Great talking with you.